none of this was conscious. You know, I didn't even ever think that I was a composer or wanted to be a composer. And I, when I was writing music and, you know, when I was writing exercises for theory class in school, it was always very theoretical for me. And I was, I was like, ah, oh, this is, I wrote a pretty bad fugue. Oh, well, you know, that doesn't matter because I'm a performer. Hello, welcome to Music is Life, a signature podcast of Perry Veritas Studios in collaboration with Green Zebra Music and recorded at Hamlin House Studio in Los Angeles, California. Music is Life is hosted by me, Joel Henry Stein. I'm a singer-songwriter, composer, producer, and musician living and working in L.A. I'm also the owner and CEO of Green Zebra Music, a music production house and the umbrella company for Green Zebra Records and Inca Publishing. In this podcast, I have conversations with working musicians throughout the world. My guests work in many genres, but they have one thing in common. They are musicians who have traveled the bumpy road of music making, and they continue to travel that road. I talk with musicians who open up about their experiences and help me and you to understand life as a working musician and how that translates into being a person as well. My guest today is Jonah Sirota, a composer and violist living in Los Angeles. But before we start our conversation, I'd like to share a few things that are on my mind. Hello, folks. Here we are on episode two of Music is Life. Thanks for joining me. I have no agenda in terms of what I plan on talking about at the beginning of this show. So I'll just riff on what is at the front of my mind. We are over two weeks into the quarantine because of the coronavirus, and I've been talking to musicians, I've been talking to artists, I've been talking to regular civilians, and everyone is having to adjust, obviously. I just read that L.A. County has deemed gun stores essential and has reopened gun stores. That to me is bewildering, but I, I suppose I'm not surprised. Uh, it is distressing, though. Um, I don't want to start the show off on that note, though, so let's talk about music. What are you guys working on out there? I'd really like to know. If there's a way for you guys to leave comments, I would love to hear them. I think you can do that on our site which is musicislifepod.com. We're still getting things going over here, but I do want to have a comment section up there because we want to hear from you guys. Uh, part of the point of this show is really to build a community among musicians uh, everywhere, really. So, you know, we want to learn from each other and uh, share. We want to share our challenges. We want to share our successes. We want to share our experiences, and uh, we want to come together as a community of musicians. What am I working on currently? A few things in terms of music. I've been creating EDM tracks. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of EDM kind of music, sort of EDM pop. Um, I'm not sure how you would categorize it, but I'm working specifically on writing songs that can be used in advertising, and it's a new endeavor for me oh my god i get so self-conscious when i'm talking into a microphone this is ridiculous it's really hard when there's nobody to stare at um i admire people who do these podcasts and they can just talk and talk and talk and there's nobody sitting at the desk 
to talk to. So I have to imagine all of you out there. Um, thank you for listening, by the way. I really hope you're getting something out of these shows. And, uh, you know, part of the reason we want to hear from you is because you can dictate what we talk about on these shows. So please send in your questions. Uh, you can shoot an email to mailbag at musicislifepod.com. Again, the email to reach us is mailbag at musicislifepod.com. In addition to writing music for advertising, I have been playing online concerts. I've done two so far since the quarantine began, and I am about to play another one in a few days. Um, This is all sort of experimental. Um, I've done one online show a few years ago on stage it and that went okay. I wasn't thrilled with the platform, but it, it worked. And I see people out there now doing stage at concerts. Um, in particular, I noticed that Grant Lee Phillips was doing a concert. So uh, I'd like to know how that went for him. Um, Grant Lee Phillips, for those of you who don't know, is a singer songwriter. Uh, he used to be here in LA for a long time, but now he's in Nashville. He's been around a long time. What else am I working on? Um, musically, let's see. Well, I'm right now. I um, I'm part of a a large cohort of songwriters. Actually, uh, there's something like, geez, I think there are like 350 of us. Although it's really like 150 that kind of show up on a regular basis, and a few of us are doing co-writes and we're collaborating and helping each other out, and. Uh, we have uh, we actually have homework every week, and we have to produce, literally produce music. <laughs> we have to make music, we have to share music, and we have to. Um, I, I, because I'm a producer, I end up helping out other musicians in terms of their recordings as well. So that's really cool. It's a little bit overwhelming, um, given everything that's going on right now. My challenge, the same as last time I shared this on the last show, my my biggest challenge right now is getting work done while I've got the kids at home because they don't really have school. They've got a few hours on online, but that's it. So they're around quite a bit. You know, I'm just giving them a lot of screen time, which I hate, hate, hate doing, but I haven't found another solution yet. So I've been practicing getting ready for these online shows, and that feels good. It's a good... You know, it just feels good to have an instrument to play and songs to sing. And um, the online concerts, the two that I've done so far, have been really enjoyable, just interacting with people. And people are really wanting music right now and a way to connect, obviously. So Zoom seems to be the leader in terms of platforms online. I've never done a concert on Zoom. I'm curious to see how it goes. Uh, the platform is not really designed for music, but in the last few days I've been tinkering with the audio settings and I think I've found a way to, uh, get, you know, decent sound through there. One of the things you have to do is you have to disable the background noise suppression and some other things. Uh, I forget there's one other audio setting you have to disable that really helps with the audio. So this will be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how people interact on zoom. Um, Obviously, you have to mute everybody in your audience, but I'm planning on 
having uh, people raise their hands, so to speak. You can do that on Zoom. You can raise your hand, and uh, I can kind of call on you and um, unmute you. And you know, people hopefully will ask questions. Hopefully, they won't request anything ridiculous. Um, although, knowing my audience, they'll probably ask for "Stairway to Freebird" and uh, my songs from like 1991. <laughs> But it's fun, you know. I, I it's it's so cool to be able to see people. What's great about this time right now is, you know, I, you don't have to tour to go see people uh, three thousand miles away. You can just have them come on Zoom. I mean, you, we can do that any time of the year. But now people really don't have a choice in terms of hearing live music. So um, I feel like we can really get we can we can kind of reel people in. We can reel our audiences in right now. So I encourage all of you who are kind of sitting on the fence or sitting on the sidelines, wondering what to do, twiddling your thumbs, I encourage you to start playing for the people who dig what you do. Get creative, figure out how you're going to do that. But there's so many ways to do that online now. I see so many Facebook Live concerts and Instagram Live stuff happening. And now I'm trying Zoom and there's Stage It. I mean, that's four platforms right there. And I'm sure there are other ones too. So yeah, get out there, make music for people. So right before recording this intro to the show, I was practicing for my upcoming concert, and I noticed after um, after practicing that it just feels so good to play. It feels so good to play. I don't know if that's because we're under so much pressure right now, Actually, I can't even speak for you guys. I don't know what you're experiencing, but I know for me, I've been trying to just generate stuff happening because all the gigs have dried up. So I've been here at the studio just writing and creating and, uh, you know, creating these concerts and events and uh, working on the podcast. And I've got this other thing called Somosonics, which I'll talk about in a minute. But my point is, I've been just working on projects that will eventually pay because, uh, you know, can't count on just this money that's going to come from the government at some point. We have to figure out how we're going to pay the bills right now. Uh, but my point is I forget that I'm a musician sometimes, and I have a feeling a lot of you experience this too. We spend so much time on the business part because we have to, we have to, you know, call the venues and we have to email this person and that person and coordinate this band for this gig or what have you and bring in various people for the studio and just there's you know and then not to mention all the promotion we have to do to get people to come to our shows all the all the time on Instagram and all the time on Facebook and YouTube and you know most of us are doing all of that ourselves it's a lot, a lot of time not playing music, not writing music, not singing, not practicing. But we all got into this because we love music. So what can we do? Where's the balance, I guess is what I'm asking. How can we remain passionate about our music how can we be super jazzed, no pun intended, about our music 
while also balancing that with all the time we have to spend on social media and all the calls and emails we have to make. Um, I don't have the answer, but I do think, well, what I'm discovering is when I spend time playing, when I spend time practicing and just, just really opening up to the joy that I experience when I, when I play just here at the house or at the studio with nobody around or with my kids, like in their rooms playing, you know, actually I really enjoy practicing when I've got people around, but not making a lot of noise (laughs) nearby. Um, I, I like the company. Um, which actually reminds me of how I used to practice in college. This is, I'm totally going on a tangent here and I'll probably never make it back to what my point was. Uh, in college, I used to practice in the bathroom of our hall and some people listening to the show, maybe, maybe they're listening to the show, maybe remember, uh, freshman and sophomore year at Rice University at Baker College, which was my dorm. Um, that's really when I first started playing out, like really playing gigs on my own as a singer songwriter, uh, the coffee house at Rice University. And I used to spend hours, you know, during the week leading up to the show in the bathroom because the acoustics were awesome and I couldn't play in my room cause my roommate was probably studying. Uh, but also the acoustics were just so freaking good in the bathroom. So I just loved practicing in there and it was, a, you know, this giant, bathroom. Well, I guess it wasn't that giant, but you know, a dorm bathroom. Anyway, my point is it feels so good to just play. And what I've noticed is when I spend time practicing and playing, it actually energizes me and fuels me and motivates me to then spend the time promoting and make the calls and send the emails and post on social media um, because I feel really good about what I'm doing at that point. If I, if I don't practice and I don't play on my own and I don't spend time just enjoying and loving the act of making music, I don't have that momentum. I don't have that energy to then broadcast to everybody, hey, come to my show. Like, I, I just don't have the confidence. I don't have the, um, there's nothing for me to, to promote, you know? Like, yeah, you can, you, can, you can set a date, you can book a show, and you can tell people all about it. But if you're not backing it up with the joy that comes with the music that you're going to be presenting, I'm not sure what the point is. Like, what are we sharing with our audiences if we don't, have joy. Now I get it's really fun and enjoyable to play in front of audiences too, but I feel like the foundation of that is the joy of just making music all the time, whether we're alone or with other people. So I just want to put that out there and share that with you guys, because that was some insight I had, um, well today, but also just in, in recent weeks as I've uh, been playing a few shows uh, since January. You know, this was, um, this year, 2020, as crazy as it's been already, um, it's been a big year for me because 2019 just sucked. (laughs) 
those of you who know me well um, know that it's been the most challenging. 2019 was the most challenging year of my life, um, namely because I went through a divorce and it was just really, really painful. Um, and I, you know, I had to move and I had to start again as a single guy with two little kids now and, um, really, really challenging. So, you know, I had built this state of the art recording studio on our property and it had been operational for a year and I had to let that go. That was part of the divorce. That upheaval in my personal life really derailed my career for a while. And, um, I haven't played shows. I, I, I bear. I, I don't think I played any shows in 2019. I think I played one. I think I played one in February of 2019, like an actual show of my music. Um, you know, I played lots of little gigs here and there. I did tons of synagogue gigs and, um, and I played, uh, at this restaurant in Calabasas. That's pretty cool, actually, called The Old Place. I was playing there quite a bit, especially in the summer of 2019. But it wasn't like a show show. And so 2020 has been great in terms of just really sharing with audiences and connecting with audiences and uh, allowing myself to, to just enjoy music again. I just didn't have the bandwidth for it in 2019, but I'm back, baby. I'm back. My guest today is composer and violist Jonah Sirota. Jonah is a new breed of multi-talented musician. He's equally at home writing concert music, performing as a soloist and chamber musician, scoring soundtracks for TV, film, and video games, and collaborating in improv and new music ensembles. His debut solo recording, Strong Sad, a 2018 National Sawdust Tracks release, features premiere recordings of new elegies for the viola by Nico Muley, Paola Prestini, Arthur Joseph McCaffrey, Valgir Sigurdsson, Robert Sirota, Kirk Knecht, and Jonah himself. His soundtrack to the public television documentary Return of the American Bison was nominated for an Emmy Award in 2019. Jonah was the violist of the recently disbanded Chiara String Quartet for all of its 18 years. With the Chiara String Quartet, he toured internationally, recorded seven albums, and played in numerous major venues worldwide. The Chiara Quartet performed much of the String Quartet repertoire from memory, including the complete String Quartets of Bella Bartok, a recording of which was released in 2016 on Azika Records. The Chiara Quartet was honored with a Grammy nomination in 2011 for Best Contemporary Classical Composition for Jefferson Friedman's Third String Quartet on the New Amsterdam label. Their albums have been featured on NPR and in Best of the Year lists from the Boston Globe, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. As a concert violist, Jonah performs with pianist Molly Markowski, with organist Kirk Necht as the improv duo Mond Green, and as a member of the revived California String Quartet. He is sought after as a Hollywood session player and regularly plays with major orchestras, including the Long Beach Symphony, where he serves as assistant principal violist. Jonah is also known as a pedagogue. He coaches chamber music at the Colburn School and teaches viola at California State University Fullerton and at the Greenwood Music Camp. Jonah has taught at the Juilliard School at Harvard University and at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he helped build a world-class chamber music program.
I met Jonah in New York City 20 years ago when I was recording my third solo album, Marionette, in Lower Manhattan. I had arranged string quartet parts for a few of my songs, and I was lucky enough to get the newly formed Kiara String Quartet to play on my record. I had no idea at the time that they were about to become one of the top string quartets in the country. Jonah and I stayed in touch over the next two decades, and we recently reconnected when he moved to L.A. a couple of years ago. He's been to my studio a couple of times now to try some things out in the space and also to play on some of my singer-songwriter material. I'm really happy to have Jonah on the show. Here is our conversation. Me and Jonah Sirota. Hey. How are you, Jonah? How's your day going so far? It's okay. You know, every day's a roller coaster ride. I, 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 um, my fiance is trying to get out of the New York area to come out here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got to be moving out of a house, and so she's delaying, and I'm just concerned that they're going to stop flights. Yeah, I just don't know what's going to happen in, the, in a week or something. So, Well, how are you holding up? I'm okay. Getting some writing done. Um, trying to do my taxes, but that's not... I know that got to... You know, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I'm wanting a refund. I'm hoping that that like saves me. So I'm right. Yeah. Uh, how about you? I'm doing okay, thank you. Um, it's been challenging having the kids here. I mean, I, I love it. You know, on the one hand, it's awesome. I love you know, I've got I get all this time with my kids, which is fantastic because yeah. I love my kids. Um, at the same time, it's really challenging to get stuff done, and and you know. Like you, um, my you know a lot of my gigs, all my gigs have dried up. Yeah, <laughs> my my gigs outside of the studio, obviously. Um, well, actually, in the studio too. I mean, like you know, I can't bring anybody in here. Yeah. Um, so I'm having to get creative about how I'm going to generate some income, and uh, so I'm working. I'm working, but I have my kids here half of the day every day, and yeah. they're young. Um, so it's, it's tricky. Well, you know, in a sense, if it's being forced to just have time with your family, I mean that, you know, it's like the the financial thing, like we're all kind of screwed anyway. So we can do the best we can, but like maybe a sign to just slow down. I I fully agree. I fully agree. I I feel like this is something that actually our planet has needed (laughs) and yeah, like a cathartic. Yeah, it, it is. It's like, a you know, there's a rhythm to nature and this is, uh, this is where we are. Right. This is where we are. It just lets humans like uh, divest ourselves of the illusion that we're under, that we're in control. Totally. <laughs> totally. Na- nature has a way of reminding us from time to time. Right. I always think of Jeff Goldblum, like, you know. In The in, Fly? Uh, no. Oh, no, in, in, in Jurassic, Park. Park. Oh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, right. Um, right. He's, you know, nature fi- finds a way. Yeah, right. <laughs> So hey, thanks for being here, man. Um, yeah. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, uh, and really talk about music and and talk about life and how music plays a role in in your life. Tell us like where you grew up and and you know how music played a role in the you know in the beginning. Like how'd you get into it? What inspired you? Uh, who are you? Yeah, um, I mean, I, music's been in my life since I was you know born basically because my my family was a musical family mm-hmm. uh, my, my dad's a composer still and my mom uh is an organist uh although she changed kind of career midstream and became an episcopalian priest um but wow. still plays the organ but when i was young she was a you know 
a DMA student at, at Boston University. You mm-hmm. know, so, uh, she was, you know, very much in the performance realm. And so growing up, you know, I heard, you know, just going to sleep, I'd hear my mom practicing Bach, you know, fugues, and I'd hear my dad writing music. So those were the kind of, there were big influences, you know, deep, far yeah. back. Wow. It's just those pro- the processes, you know, not just, I mean, the practice process and the, and the kind of creative process were like, just kind of used to that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think I was lucky that my parents didn't put a whole lot of pressure on me to, to, to be doing music. I mean, I think they, they didn't necessarily want to feel like they were forcing me into the family business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's funny you say that because I think a lot of artists uh, have the opposite experience where their parents are putting pressure on them not to become musicians. Right, right. No, and they certainly wouldn't weren't putting pressure. They were they certainly were happy to support it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but they weren't like you need to go practice. You know, right. I think their their attitude was if I if it mattered to me, I'd figure out a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the truth is that like I started playing the violin at age five. And it did not matter to me for much of my childhood. Like I, I was, you know, I would just get, get it together for the lesson and that was it, mm-hmm. you know? And also I didn't, you know, I, I think I came to the viola, um, sort of by accident, uh, in high school, I had a summer camp. I went to this great summer camp called Greenwood. Um, that's a chamber music camp in in western massachusetts in the mountains um and that was a kind of a first experience where i mean i'd done like school orchestra and stuff but that was like a first experience where like i understood that music had this power that was you know to transformative power for like me and and people around me and community and how it could really impact people in a in a different way than just you know being a cool thing to do um or maybe it's that like at my family, you know, I clearly I, it was, I was just, I was used to the fact that in my family's life that music held a, an important position for my parents, but I had never experienced it for myself or seen how it could be a part of my relationships. So that was very meaningful. And at that, at that camp was also where I had a teacher sort of say to me, you got, you have big hands, your vibrato is really wide. Like, why don't you try the viola? Hmm, interesting. Kind of, kind of horrified, you know, feel like if, if you don't think about it very much just it's like someone saying why don't you try you know being an ogre you know right. <laughs> like, you're like oh <laughs> like, I'm not, not that, that's not something yeah. that i was thinking about but sure you know <laughs> um yeah that's interesting because that was actually going to be one of my questions like how did you come to the viola and also in general you know because you know obviously we're familiar with viola jokes and and i think violists get a bad rap right. um and you know that they're often seen as failed violinists, right? Yeah, or or violinists that just couldn't cut it on the violin and so they had to move to viola or something. But yep, I, yep. I, obviously that's not true, but I'd love to hear your take on all that and, and how it pertains to you. Well, what's funny is it's not it's not, not true too in the sense that uh, what makes me a good violist is not like... Violin is all about, you know, it's the highest range instrument, which means that it's also about, uh, you know, the higher you are on an instrument, the easier it is to quickly jump from note to note. So violin's always been about speed and, and facility that way at a very fine motor skills, you know, 
And, um, you know, I think I've actually really developed that side of myself more in, in recent years as a violist, but the truth of the matter is, uh, viola matched my musical voice, my expression. I mean, mm. physically, you know, as a, mm. as a baritone, like I was closer to my voice on the viola, you know, in high school, I wasn't quite that low of a voice yet, mm-hmm. but I immediately felt like an expressive connection to it just as, as far as like what it, you know, what the sound was. And I was a failed violinist. I mean, it's not that I, it's not that I, you know, wasn't okay as a violinist, but there was a real ceiling to what I was going to accomplish on that instrument. Um, and, you know, it's convenient that there was this other instrument with the same tech technical sort of setup, but which was actually a very different instrument, um, very different sound with a different, you know, uh, kind of, kind of character, uh, both to the, the sound itself and to the, the way you approach it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, that stereotype is partly true, but for me, it was all about finding something I loved and I, and that instrument was that once I started getting into it. Um, and then I was motivated and practiced and got better quickly because I just, it really clicked. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. So you're at the summer camp, things really click for you. You move to the viola and and then what happens? What's what's the leap to like, hey, I'm going to do this. This is going to be my thing. Um, it actually, it also happened at that camp a couple of years later, which is that I, I had like a very life-changing experience playing a late Beethoven movement, um, the the Heiliger Dankesang, Slum Movement of Beethoven, Opus 132. Um, and I just was like, wow, I just can't imagine anything more important and sort of deeper than this, you know, in our world. And I want to, I want to make this music and share it with people. Excuse so, me. you know, my, my, uh, my, my goal then became, you know, it, it took, it took me even, even as late as my senior year in college, uh, in high school, I was still deciding, do I do, do am I going to be a music major or something else? I was interested in all kinds of. Yeah. What would know, the something else be? Yeah, it would be, you know, it would be some kind of liberal arts. It would be, comparative religion or, or, or English literature or, or, you know, uh, I had this idea I was going to study history, even though I'm terrible at history. Like I, I can't remember <laughs> state, whatever, but I want you know, I wanted a broad, um, was that, was that out of your interest or is that out of like fear that you couldn't succeed as a musician? No, no, it was interest. Okay. Um, I don't think I ever feared going into music so much as what I feared was, you know, when, the way it is for for kid for for a high school kid deciding to become a music major, as you, know, you probably recognize yourself, is that you feel like you're locking into something earlier than most people have to. Yeah, for sure. You know, and you feel like by, by taking this path, you're really diverging from from all these other possible paths. Um, and in high school, you know, you're still taking you know eight you know whatever English and science and history and math and social studies and what you know foreign language, like you're still getting that broad education. And I knew as soon as I started doing music, it was like, that was going to sort of completely end. Um, I went to Rice University for undergrad. And I, one of the reasons I chose, you know, I had a few choices. One of the reasons I chose that place was because it was like a real university, not just a music school. Yeah, and I was that's the same music. reason I picked it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just thought that could be good. And it was, I mean, I, I was very thankful for that. You've had an illustrious career already. Tell us about the Chiara String Quartet and how that 
formed? I mean, after after Rice, you went. Did you go straight to Juilliard after Rice? Yeah. Okay. And that's where the quartet formed, right? Uh, it's a more complicated story than that. I mean, um, we were both me and the cellist Greg Beaver were in the same class at Rice, mm-hmm. um, and Rebecca Fisher, the first violinist, had been in New York doing the Columbia and Juilliard sort of dual degree program. So she was basically in residence at Columbia, but taking lessons and doing, doing other stuff at Juilliard. Right. But her dad was teaching at Rice in the meantime. Her dad was teaching at Rice, <laughs> coaching, coaching and, and Greg and teaching Greg. Um, and, and then that we had a, another player, um, Rachel noise, who at that time was at Cleveland Institute. Um, and she ended up, um, you know, so, so we had, the reason that that was a group that existed already was that, uh, they, they had, been playing with a different violist actually another really great violist danielle farina they had met at the music corda summer string academy which isn't that far from where i had gone to camp Mm -hmm. in the berkshires in western massachusetts it was at mount holyoke okay uh, college so they had met and been kind of assigned together and really clicked and they did a couple summers there and then when they wanted to keep going without uh you know without being at that festival the violist decided she had other things she was wanting to do instead and so because I was colleagues with Greg and friends with Becca for life, we, our, her parents and my parents were classmates at Oberlin. And, oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you knew Becca beforehand. Right, right. So my dad had written, you know, piece, I think already five pieces for Norman at that point or something. Uh, they, had, they had a real um, kind of longstanding relationship. And so for me growing up, you know, the Fisher, Becca and Abby Fisher were like, cousins almost we wow say. interesting yeah so yeah. just for the people listening uh so norman fisher is a cellist um a very accomplished cellist and his daughters are becca and uh abby fisher who are abby's a singer and becca's a violinist right. so just we're dropping and names here so. was, in, was in this very influential string quartet the concord quartet yep. which was uh but they didn't. They, their career was was short and intense, and, and you mm-hmm. know they played intense music. Intense music, intense <laughs> amount of performance. I think the Kronos Quartet sort of picked up where they left off. Mm-hmm. But if they were going, I think they would be. Uh, they would have been sort of um, known to audiences of our age in the same breath because they were trying to do a similar thing, which was mm-hmm. commissioning and performing a ton, recording a ton of new music. Um, at a really high level and then also playing the standard rep, which was different than the, than the chronos. Um, so go, go back to, uh, Kiara and, uh, right. The so, formation yeah. of Kiara. And then also like, you know, I'm curious about the, the first conversations you guys had about, Hey, what's, what's this band going to be? You yeah. know, who, who are we and what, what do we play and what are we about? Yeah. Well, you know, we were a very, um, we were a well let me just let me just say there's the finish the sort of formation of the group yeah go on that, um uh after both greg the cellist and myself finished our undergrads we both auditioned for it and got in and decided to go to juilliard for master's degree and becca also uh decided to go there as well and, and was able to go so then there was three of us at, you know we had done some summer stuff together uh, at the Aspen, we went to the Aspen Quartet program, and we did some other festivals. Um, and then we've been on on a hiatus for a little while because of uh, the other the second violinist uh, Rachel's um, had some some injuries that 
made her decide. I'm not sure I'm even doing performance. So we were like, okay, let's just take a break. But we figured the, the three of us getting to Juilliard, maybe we could try to get something going. You know, we were all kind of trying to also get our own playing and, and career goals, getting, you know, ramping them up and figuring out what we wanted. Got to Juilliard and then started playing together with some other people, played with a couple other people. And then at the end of our of our time there, we're like, well, this is our moment to decide what we want to do because we could either go off on our own and do our own stuff or we could try to actually make a go of this. Mm-hmm. And on a, on a kind of a lark, we applied for um, this Chamber Music America uh, grant that was called a rural residency that was getting uh, a national endowment for the arts funding at that time uh, to send groups to really rural areas and basically pay them a stipend to living almost living <laughs> almost living wage <laughs> to live somewhere play lots of performances outreach in that community teach and sort of help build the music uh like infrastructure in a place um and so we actually only had three members of the group we we, we had a someone we were playing with and then they ducked out and then they were really only we, we kind of got the grant with only three members so then we had to try to find our fourth and that's when we finally connected with Heyoung who went by Julie Yoon at that time, Heyoung Yoon. Um, and she had been playing with a group at, at Juilliard, a student group, and that they were disbanding after school. So she was ready to look for something different. And she also had the kind of interest in and sort of chutzpah to be like, all right, I'll move to North Dakota, which is where we got this, ended up winning this grant. So, mm-hmm. grant for. so uh, the four of us just left New York um, this was in the that's yeah, that's, a, that's a big deal. Okay. It was I, a big I, deal. I, so, I mean, yeah. what conversations did you have with yourself about that? Like, yeah. like New York versus North Dakota. That's a big change. No, I mean, it was temporary. It was it was one to three years, and we knew okay. it wouldn't be forever. Uh, but yeah, it was a huge conversation. Um, I think the thinking was this though: like, here was a group of people. We found each other. Um, Hey Young joined very quickly, but she was actually very ideologically aligned with the rest of us as far as commitment, as far as um, her vision of what quartet could be. Like we were all really interested. Like we had a, a dream of a real life doing this, um, and in a sense, it was something that that we, um, you know, no one in the group uh, took half way like mm-hmm. it was a, a, a really big full like 100 percent commitment from everybody just just ideologically almost so the new york the leaving new york piece was really hard but everything else about it made total sense like we had an opportunity to be together in a place get paid be able to rehearse you know prepare a repertoire do competitions all that kind of stuff and it was a little bit of a no-brainer so we, we just jumped on it awesome so you get to north dakota and I mean, I, I know you guys stuck together for 18 years. I mean, very few bands of or ensembles stay together, you know, for more than two or three years. So th- this yeah. is remarkable. So, and you guys were in North Dakota. You, you ended up staying there, didn't you? Or what? No. Tell us. No. no. We, we were there for two years. Okay. Um, and then we returned to New York and, and lived in New York for three years uh, at the last two years of which we were also the graduate quartet and residence at Juilliard. So we went back for a Got first it. diploma as a group. Um, 
And I think I think what gets confusing for people is that then we did take a university teaching job in Nebraska, which got it. That's that's what I'm confusing. I'm confusing that. And everybody gets confused. Yeah. Um, you know, relatively speaking, I mean, Lincoln, Nebraska is a town of about a quarter million. Um, you know, that's not rural. Grand, Grand Forks, North Dakota was was you know forty five thousand, which is actually already huge for that part of the world. Right. Um, but. Um, no, and we were, it was a big 10, you know, research, you know, large state school research institution. Uh, so that they created a job for us, uh, in 2005 and that was, uh, you know, that was huge. Uh, quartets really like really rely on something like a university residency because our, the concertizing and the other aspects of our work are so unpredictable. You know, you'd have it's feast or famine you'd have you know we'd have times that we were on the road all the time and then times where we wouldn't get you know wouldn't have enough concerts for for a spring or something and you know you can't rely on the concert income to feed your family and you know there's no health insurance and all that kind of stuff so the university job really allowed us to have the the performance career that we wanted mm-hmm. um, and we were able to they were you know as a first job for us it was excellent they were able to provide both flexibility and stability. And we were able to really build a great chamber music program there, um, which, you know, I, I like to think is still kind of part of our legacy there. You guys ended up having this incredible career. I mean, you guys became one of the top string quartets in, in the world, really. I'd love to just hear some, like a couple of stories. Like what's one awesome highlight that you remember from being in that quartet? I'm sure there are a ton, but like, what's one yeah. that just comes to mind right now? Yeah. Well, um, there were a couple of big moments for us when we, you know, we were again, never a group that was su- super, it's funny, 18 years, you say that's such a long time for a band, you know? And what's funny about string quartets is it is, but they still call you a young quartet at 18 years, you know? Mm. Because there's quartets that are this, that are sixty years old, or seventy yeah, years. Yeah, that's crazy. It doesn't mean it's the same membership, but right, there, right. There's this kind of there's a tradition of the quartet being something that really has a lifetime of growth, um, and I understand why. Because as you get to perform this music, you know, you there's a way that you get to intimately know it, and and it just kind of starts to s- settle in and and like age in a very important way that you can't really nothing else uh kind of replaces so you know if you're playing you're talking about playing the cycle of beethoven string quartets you know we did that full cycle like four times um but i can only imagine what that would feel like on the 40th or 400th time and we mm-hmm. never point. we played you know beethoven quartets almost every every concert but, mm-hmm. but as far as playing them all and how that feels um but, you know, we we started off just like any quartet, you know, inspired by the great, you know, the the the, the Budapest Quartet, the Juilliard Quartet, the Guarneri Quartet, the Kronos Quartet, you know, and these people that had come before us, the Concord Quartet, uh, Cleveland Quartet, people that that so inspired us. Um, and they're there when they were when these quartets were were doing what they were doing, it was new and it was sort of radical in this country. Um. And after a while, what I think we started to feel is that, you know, that path, though, is not radical anymore. Um, it's well-worn. Um, and we still wanted to be able to do something creatively um, new and important and unique. 
And so at a couple of key moments, we kind of, we'd have these powwows and go, you know, I'm not happy yet. Like with what, of course, that's like any creative life, right? Like we're not yet satisfied. Like you gotta keep going. Um, but uh, we had that, we had a moment fairly early on um, about our audiences because we were sitting there going, you know, like we love the chamber music diehards. We love that we go to a concert hall and there's people there, often retirees who've played this music themselves or they're there with a score and they love it. Um, we love that there's people that were, you know, that were part of that radical new wave of chamber music in the, in the, especially in this country, I think it's fair to say in the sixties and seventies when it really went from being a few groups that were to this kind of explosion of chamber music in this country. Um, and you know, people that were, were young then, but loved it. And, and they're still keeping the stuff alive. In many cases, they're the presenters. That's, we have always had a, we always had appreciation for them and loved that. But we were trying to bring a new group in, a new audience as well, and finding that we were not as successful with that. And so as a group, we, we did a lot of soul searching and we were asking around to a lot of people. Um, and we, we came across uh, a, a guy by named Matt Heimovitz. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I don't know him, no. He's a cellist, a uh, Canadian cellist, um, and he his thing that he was doing for a while was to... Now, and then, by the way, as far as what time frame we're talking about, this is like, you know, uh, 2006, 2007. Okay. So um, he's going around the country playing box suites in all 50 states in bars. Wow. And, um, you know, nowadays that that's not a hugely shocking idea. Um, at the time, though, it was, uh, you know, when we kind of researched into a little bit of this later, we found that there was actually a movement towards playing, mu you know, music, especially, well, of course, new music and avant-garde music always in clubs and bars, but, um, but classical music, there was a little of this in the late sixties, early seventies, and then it kind of petered out. Mm -hmm. But in the modern era, this, as far as we knew, this guy's, what he was doing was totally unique. Um, and we decided we wanted to be the first string quartet to be doing that. And, so we we made a real push and we uh hired a manager that who's she was a uh kind of a folk singer who her her kind of relationships were with clubs and bars so you know she she was still booking our regular concert you know concert hall concerts but she also had these relationships with places where she could you know do the regular kind of door deals that you know that a singer songwriter does you know um and of course that was a totally new model for us financially uh a real a real way to to lose money <laughs> uh, but but it was a you know it was a great as far as understanding you know how how it worked and our goal was to play the same music we'd always played but to make it approachable to do it in a different space to sort of take context away so that people who could show up at a concert and not feel like they have to be dressed a certain way. They have to know a certain thing about music. They have to know when to clap. They have to um, mm -hmm. show up in a location that they don't feel comfortable with. So this was all about trying to reach a different audience. Right. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are scared of classical music for a lot of those reasons you just mentioned. Like, I have to dress up. I have to spend a lot of money to go to this concert right. hall. Right. I don't understand the music necessarily. That's a whole other conversation, but... Oh, yep. Yeah. So, so that was what we were trying to address. So this, we had this initiative called Chamber Music in Any Chamber, and that was that was what that was. And 
you know, we played hundreds of shows in clubs and, uh, you know, we were using often, we were often amplified a little bit, mm-hmm. which again, that kind of stuff is now part of the norm of what, you know, what, especially new music, but classical music in general, you know, I think we had, we did some shows at this really great venue that was kind of custom built for this kind of performing called Le Poisson Rouge. Right. That's, that's the one that comes to mind right away. Right. Right. You you were talking about the bars. Yeah. Yeah, But that was, that was the first that certainly got on my radar. Right. Right. Um, And that was, that was was like 15 years ago or something. Yeah, it was almost exactly the time we were doing this. Yeah. So it kind of, we hit at a really good moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I think I think when the Emerson Quartet like debuted like a Haydn album at Le Poisson Rouge, we were like, that's it. It's over. Hip hop is dead. Like, like <laughs> we're on to the next thing, you know, because it was like the whole thing's come full circle, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but that's basically, uh, you know, there was this kind of arc. And I think we were really pleased to be at the cutting edge of that. Um, and you know, did it always work? Like, did we always get new audiences? Like, no, sometimes we'd have the concert hall patrons come to clubs sometimes for the first time, which we called reverse outreach. We loved that, you know, like <laughs> people sort of scarily, you know, uh-huh. what's going to happen at the club, you know, right. it's like, well, you'll order a drink and you'll sit down and it'll just be like going to a concert, except that, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, making too much noise. It's fine. Right. Um, and uh, it, it was awesome, you know. And um, the other thing that we were really insistent about was that this wasn't outreach in the sense that we didn't, we weren't trying to convert people to concert hall, uh, you know, audiences. You know, a lot of what we had read about before then really had this patronizing attitude that, you know, same thing with going into schools that, like, you go into schools and you, you know, you you teach the kids the good news of of music <laughs> and then maybe they'll come to the concert. And that, that that is a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we also just were like, for us, it was about the music itself and mm-hmm. just sharing the music in as many ways as possible. Um, so yeah, that was a really meaningful thing for us. And I think some of the shows we did, um, you know, taught me a really different way to think about what it's like to communicate music. Um, and we, we wouldn't always, it didn't always feel like the best performance, like, it's absolutely true that like you get into a pristine acoustic in a great concert hall with a really quiet audience and you play like a certain, you know, important classical piece, Beethoven quartet or something. And, uh, you know, you can have a height of sort of, of, of like acoustic and concentrational, um, kind of what feels like perfection almost, or like this, this magical thing happen. And in a club, it was a real challenge because there were often external noises and you were amplified. It was harder to reach across the group in that way. But what we realized is that sometimes that didn't mean that it didn't connect as well with audiences. In fact, sometimes it was more important for them. Hmm. Sometimes the challenges of the situation um, let other people feel more like we were more accessible or more vulnerable. Um, And so for me, it was really important to realize that there's trade-offs and that there are special things that can happen in, in one kind of situation and other kinds of special things in a different situation. Um, and so I wouldn't, you know, trade that for anything. Um, yeah. That's so that was, one, that was one key moment. And then the other one of the quartet with a very similar motivation, the other thing the quartet decided later in our, in our time together was that we felt like for ourselves or the way that we were as musicians, 
that the printed page was getting in the way of our communication with each other, mm. the audience. And so we started memorizing, trying to memorize Cortez. Yeah. And that was a huge, scary, difficult thing to do that never wasn't challenging. You I'm know? sure. Uh, Didn't you guys do the entire Bartok rep from we did. memory? We did, yes. We would do that over two days. Um, and uh, and that was really, um, you know, one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I would do it again, uh, <laughs> but it was also magical and, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like being able to do some kind of crazy athletic. Stuff. I was going to say, it's, it's, it must be like training for a marathon or something yeah. similar, right? Where you just like yeah. totally take take your abilities to their limit and yeah. see if you can do it right it was like that i you know for me uh memory is a real challenge in general um and uh i think i think i think for for me and Hayung, the inner voices of the group you know a lot of this music we we had a, har- a larger memory challenge than than the outer voices just mm-hmm. because it's written yeah um but I also found it very difficult, um, actually less so with Bartok, strangely enough, much more so with classical music, hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, I, I'm also a composer and I think like a composer. So I'm, if there's a melody and a harmony and a bass line, I can memorize the melody, I can memorize the bass line, and I can easily memorize the harmony. Mm-hmm. What's much harder to do is to memorize exactly what part of the harmony I'm meant to be at a given time. Mm. And if you're playing a composer as clever as someone like Mozart or Beethoven, uh, they are changing that stuff all the time. Right. So they don't, might, they never might, do anything three times in a row. That's right. So even yeah. on the recap of the music where the melody and the bass line is identical, often my voicing in that chord will change. Right. And, and, you know, it's not like a tragedy if I play the wrong version, the wrong part of the harmony, you know, but it's not Mozart then either. It's me. Right. Right. Uh, right. right. Uh, so there were all kinds of little mistakes I felt like I was making, which no one probably would know if they really were following the score, but which were very sort of stress-inducing. You're like, I'm cheating. Uh, is anyone going to find me out? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. That's fascinating, actually. So talk to us about your transition from Kiara after this long, well, you say it's not long, but to me it's long. And it's still, you know, in our lifespan, it's still a good chunk of your life, right? So 18 years go by, and why the transition? Why move to what you're doing now, and what did that transition look like? How has it looked, and how has it been for you in terms of the challenges and the rewards? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, uh, the, the quartet, uh, I, I, I brought a... I was doing some work. I know there's a lot of, there's been a lot of change. Life has changed. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, and there was a lot of changes in my life. Um, some family changes, some, um, I went through a divorce. It was, it was, uh, um, better than some, you know, uh, it was mostly amicable, but it was difficult and mm-hmm. my son and stuff too. So it was hard. Um, and I started looking at myself and what I really wanted to be accomplishing. And, um, you know, I had seen that as much as my quartet was wonderful and had been a great thing, that also it had been a real strain on my family. Um, and I realized that if I was going to try to, you know, have another life, uh, you know, build a, the, the next, you know, family unit, whatever that is, that I didn't want to necessarily go through that again. Um, 
but but more than that, I was really trying to look at you know the quartet was this thing I always wanted to do, but was it all that I wanted to do? And um, you know, how can I be really true to myself and my voice? And I had started um, doing some uh, improvisation um, on a kind of regular basis with a good friend of mine, Kurt Connect, who's an organ player and composer. He's actually a really great composer, um, mostly choral, well, lots of things, but he's especially known as a choral composer. Uh, he also has a really great music publishing website called Music Spoke, which is for composers out there worth checking out because um, it's a great composer focused. You know, the idea being that you you don't you don't sign away all of your rights and, right. and royalties to the publisher. Um, so he and I have a group called Mondegreen, a duet, um, mm-hmm. uh, organ and viola improv. And we have been doing a lot of work together. Um, he was the organist at a church and we were kind of you know, having fun at this, you know, just making, making, making music together at that place and, and then recorded some of it. Um, you guys, just to deviate for one second, um, you guys have a collaborative work on your new album, right? Yes. Yes. It's called currently. So yeah, I have an album out as of two years ago, year and a half ago. Um, that, that features one, one of our collaborations and we haven't yet put together a, a larger, we want to do a whole album of our, of our stuff together. Mm-hmm. Let's pause briefly and listen to a piece of Jonah's. This is from his debut solo viola record, which is called strong, sad. And the piece we're going to listen to is called currently it's performed by his improv duo Mondegreen.
Yeah, so that was the sort of where I started writing. I mean, I, with a father as a composer, a pretty illustrious one, I was always really re- reluctant to consider myself someone who actually composes music. Um, yeah, I had, I had I'd written down some questions for you, and that was actually one of my questions. was like, yeah. what, what, what was that like? I, I, we, we can zigzag here a little bit. Yeah, so, no, yeah. Um, um, you know, growing up with an with a accomplished composer father, um, what that was like for you as you know, someone who obviously must have had uh, the inclination to create, uh, but you were somewhat in his shadow, I imagine. So how did you break out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the point with it is that none of this was conscious. You know, I didn't even ever think that I was a composer or wanted to be a composer. And I, when I was writing music and, you know, when I was writing exercises for theory class in school, it was always very theoretical for me. Mm-hmm. You know? And I was, I was like, ah, oh, this is, I wrote a pretty bad fugue. Oh, well, you know, that doesn't matter because I'm a performer, you know. Um, I always had music in my head that I was coming up with. I always thought it was too trite. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, lots of groove-based music that's not at all part of the classical. Um, you Can know, you give us some names? What are some some artists, some bands that you dig? Um, I don't know. I mean, just you know, I like anything that's good. You know, <laughs> growing up, I you know, I loved um, sort of rock, jazz, fusion stuff. Like I loved Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell, and uh, you know, and I, um, um singer songwriter stuff was always huge for me um i loved you know great you know historic jazz stuff um you know um art tatum and you know miles davis and whatever i mean whatever i could find i was just you know like like all of us and and i think there used to be this sense that finding good music was like uh digging for for treasure you know mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy now if there's something you like you, you plug it yeah. into your your streaming service and there's an algorithm yeah that totally if you like but back right? in the day you had to go to tower records and like you know leaf through all the <laughs> all the right. cds and try to find something and hope hope if you never heard of it that it might actually be good right right exactly so i yeah so i i was um you know um i think i think then stevie wonder i mean you know i loved the beatles and whatever but i remember i remember having this realization in college when i heard um stevie wonder songs in the key of life mm. And I was like, wow, you know, here we are, you know, I've always been told that there's no greater album than, you know, Sgt. Pepper, you know? And I was like, this is the African-American Sgt. Pepper Mm -hmm. and it's every bit as important and influential. And I don't know anything about this. And I was like, what is missing here? Like, what have I not learned in school? You know what I mean? Um, I think we even studied Sgt. Pepper, like in music history class. You know what I mean? That was the, you know, it was almost canon and that's when i sort of realized wait a minute the canon's a little limited here you know <laughs> um so uh yeah so i okay then on the other side of it i also was obsessed with obsessed isn't the right word i didn't listen to it um but i always loved uh great film score soundtracks mm-hmm. um and uh, like like most of my many of my generation i grew up on the music of john williams which um, you know, there's a sort of a stereotype now that a lot of people coming up now, that's like the only composer that they know. Right. Um, I, of course, knew him, but I also understood his context. I also got that he was copying a lot of stuff because that's what film composers do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really discounted my love of that stuff uh, because, but I really did love it. You know, as a kid, I just, you know, couldn't get enough. In fact, I, 
he used to conduct the Boston Pops, and I'd seen him yeah. conduct. And, I was going to ask uh, you about that. I, I imagine you've yeah. probably seen him. Yeah, because I was I grew up in the Boston area, and he he was going to quit that job at one point because um, he was busy, and you know. And I wrote him a letter at the age of eight. You know? Wow. I, he didn't respond or anything, but he ended up staying on for another couple of years. And I always was like, I did it. You know, <laughs> Wait, what, is that what you, is that what you said in your letter? You're like, please, please, please stay. Please quit. Like, please, we need you. You know, also, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's amazing. Jonah, an yep. eight year old. Wow. Yep. Yep. Um, but you know, I think I recognized at that age, like the, if the same person can write the soundtrack to, you know, star Wars, ET, Indiana Jones, um, jaws trying to think what, Oh, Superman. Like those were the ones I knew at that mm-hmm. age. For a lot of his other stuff, um, Close Encounters. Close of Encounters. Time. I was going to say I hadn't, yeah. that, I hadn't seen that yet. That was yeah, like yeah, yeah. You know, esoteric, you know, right? That was some, somewhat esoteric. I saw uh, that when I was I, I was I was like five or something when I saw that. Oh movie. wow! So, yeah, I still remember. Yeah. It. Da, 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 da. I still remember it. Yeah, um, but ET ET was huge, um, and I think you know what what's amazing to me now watching these movies is that. Um, you know, I, I also was a very sensitive kid and I almost had trouble with movies because I felt too, it was too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize now, like so much of that was, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a musician, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a sensitive musically. And these scores were overwhelming. I mean, they were designed to be, they were, right. they were Vagnerian, they were operatic, they were absolutely, you know, um, if there is any modern, and of course, now that I've gone back and looked at the film music of, you know, Korngold and Max Steiner and, and, you know, um, Newman and all, all the people that right. kind of built, I, I realized that he was actually bringing back a tradition that had, oh, yeah. you know, been gone for a while. Yeah. Um, but boy, did it, it work for me, you know? So those are big influences also, uh, that I recognize now because I'm doing screen scoring myself mm-hmm. and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't give myself, I didn't allow for these two parts of myself to be part of both part of who I was mm. and really recently so that was part of the process is exciting. that is, why do you think that is were you subscribing to some kind of um well i mean wh- where did you get that idea that you couldn't be both oh it's absolutely my you know uh, the you know I, w- without meaning any uh you know without any negatives on my upbringing um it was absolutely part of my upbringing in that you know i was taught the way that classical music viewed itself at that time you know uh, there was a sense of new music being a a forwards marching progress kind of trajectory that you were either with it or you weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my my father trained as a composer at the tail end of um, you know serialism. I imagine uh, yeah, serialism right. and the academic um, kind of um, monoculture of of that. Right. Um, and and uh, you know he struggled mightily. You know with and against that um you know on the one hand it really did make him a lot of who he is as a composer he still writes in a style that's that's deeply influenced i think by um by his serial composers you know composer influences um but at the same time um it's funny i just said his serial and and my phone thought i said hey siri um <laughs> and that's awesome up. hey uh, siri play me a 12-tone row yeah exactly um so, uh, but at the same time, oh no, my Siri just went there off. You go. That's hilarious. Yeah, um, she's not playing Schoenberg for me. Big, there's listening. Okay, um, so uh, at the same time, he was always a melodic sort of expressive composer, and 
Um, you know, he also studied with Nadia Boulanger. There were there were these conflicts, and it was all you know. I watched him struggle with that and, and figure it out, figure out what he, who he wanted to be. Um, and then I went to music school, and I had very much a reinforcement of this view. You know, the the hundred great works view. Um, you know, it was agreed upon both in my household growing up and in these courses that you know Stravinsky was more important than a minimalist composer, for instance. Mm-hmm that Sondheim was a good composer, that Andrew Lloyd Webber was a bad composer. Totally. You know, all that, there was, there was, it's not, it's, you know, I don't disagree with some of these statements, but I also think that there was a dismissiveness about this is in, this is out, which, yeah. uh, which we're all now working through, but it's also because the people that, you know, the people that decide those things are no longer with us. Right. And it was just, you know, um, this is how history marches on. Mm-hmm. I think it's been very interesting now to go back and listen to, uh, Vivaldi or Puccini and someone like that that was accepted canon and then realized but they, they were probably every bit the same kind of you know or handle for that matter you know is like Philip Glass or Andrew Lloyd Webber you know th- th- there's a certain kind of uh, th- they're wonderful composers I'm not trying to you know, sure, no, we, I, minimize I, I, them my, yeah. my point is that there is a, always a, a, a tension back and forth between um you know, um, complexity and simplicity between, you know, commercial and, and art, you know, pure art between, um, audience sort of focused and creator focus. I mean, those tensions ebb and flow through the history of, of art, you know? Um, and once I started to see it that way, I, and, and realized, you know, these things were these things that I had grown up around, they're all there and they weren't going to go away and they're part of our life. And that's, what art is about is you make something out of it and you decide what it is to you and then you create something. And I, and I didn't have to, uh, I could stop worrying about whether my, I was able to start writing music when I, when I was real when I realized it's not my job to be the great, you know, the great artist, artistic hero, but that idea is kind of running, running its course a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think the internet disavowed us all of that because, you know, if some, if some, you know, six-year-old kid could put something on, you know, piano thing up on her on, on Instagram and have it get a gazillion hits. Like all bets are off. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> I know. Yeah. What microphone do you have there? What is that? This is a Royer R10. Oh, nice. It's the, it's the less expensive of the, Ro- the Royer ribbon mics. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's a great mic. Because, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you know the Royer stuff. I do. Um, I'm, I, I don't own one, but um, I would like to. I mean, I want a 121 and I'm, you know, sort of saving for that, but this is like the poor man. It's like a $500 microphone, mm-hmm. um, that gets pretty decent. You know, it, I have to use a cloud lifter with it cause it's, uh, you know, it's the gain is fairly low, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, but, but, uh, as far as like quality, sound quality on a viola for the price, it's sort of unbeatable. Yeah. You know? I'm sure it sounds amazing. amazing. Yeah. So what are you working on these days? Yeah. Um, what, are you, what are you creating? You just yeah. you just put out this record of your viola playing, and you've got some compositions on there. But what are you making That's these right. days? That's right. Um, so I'm I'm sort of splitting my my efforts between writing concert music. I mean, besides playing, I'm playing a lot. Yeah, I was playing a lot until a week ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I do. I do. Uh, well, you were playing out a lot, but I, you could still play in your apartment. No, that's true. But I was, you know, I was sorry. I was playing, um, you know, 
a lot of Hollywood sort of session stuff. So uh-huh. movie soundtracks and TV soundtracks and, and records. Um, and how, played, are you, how are you going about getting that work? Uh, it's, it's worked out well. I have, I, I know some really great people in that, in that industry. And I've, um, uh, I think just because I knew people from school, et cetera, that people really were, it was wonderful, really nice. And, and, and I feel very lucky that I was sort of vouched for as a musician, mm-hmm. uh, working quartet, you know, um, a lot of the, uh, but people don't really realize is that a lot of the people that play in these, in these, um, in these soundtracks are also very accomplished soloists and chamber musicians themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the most fun thing to do is get to sit around and play chamber music, which we, you know, we do, and it's really fun. And, um, so no, I've been very lucky. I've gotten some really wonderful uh, opportunities already out here. And I think as far as being a part of how this, you know, the, the, the movie and entertainment industry work, um, I, I knowing my background and those two sort of halves of me, it, it really brings them together in a wonderful way. Like it's, you're helping to make the magic. And I think there's something really fun about watching a, you know, a composer and a director and a producer, sometimes even like actors and studio executives come by during these recording sessions and see them. The moment that they're watching you record the music that goes with a film is the moment that film is actually coming to life for them for the first time mm-hmm. before that moment there is, there is a, it's, it's a two dimensional image. And as soon as the music's there, you know, we, we all, we know this as musicians, sure. that that's the case, yeah. but the very mysterious process for a lot of non-musicians and yeah. there's something amazing about being a part of that. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's a really fun thing. And not to mention that the, you know, the history and the, the, you know, the storied scoring stages for these studios. I mean, like, you know, when I'm at Sony and I, and, or at Fox and I, you know, I know that, you know, ET was recorded there or, or, you know, do you get uh, goosebumps music? Yeah. You hear, as soon as you're playing in that space, there's an acoustic to the space that you're like, I know this room. I've sat in this room before because when you're in the movies, you're sitting in that scoring stage. You're literally being, you know, having, in you know in perfect you know whatever 24 channel sound you're having that space recreated for you so it's it's awesome like it's very very cool um in the case of a place like um uh i'm trying to remember which i think it's um whether it's fox or sony that that's fred astaire um i think it's sony which had been mgm anyway fred astaire had put a uh, a sprung stage a a a, a hollow stage mm-hmm. Floor, mm-hmm. so they could stick microphones under the floor so that the yeah, tap deck. I, I'd heard about up. that. Yeah, and they still use that. They still use that in the bass section of the orchestra to get a sub bass. Wow. So, it, like stuff like that is really cool, and just you know, mm-hmm. are they still have these original music stands that have like notches cut out of the wood for your cigarette? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I'm sure you use all the time. Which we use all the time. Yeah, yeah. you're definitely allowed to smoke in there. No. Now you just put your joint in there. Right, right. No, that's not the vibe. Uh, uh, um, so wait, so back to what you're making right now. Let's, let's right. go back so, there. So anyway, that's really fun. Um, and then when I'm with the work that I'm doing, and I also play in the Long Beach Symphony, and I also do some teaching. But as mm-hmm. far as my writing, which is my, yeah. sort of the work, yeah. I'm, splitting, I'm trying to really split my time half and half between writing concert music and working on soundtrack work. Um, the, the soundtrack work has mostly been student films, 
And even when I don't have a gig, I'm just doing work just to do it. I'm doing sample demo cues and stuff because I'm trying to get uh, material that I can use to, you know, you're marketing as a, as a screen scoring composer, you're marketing not to other musicians, you're marketing right. to directors and producers. So um, that's, that's something I'm building. That's the new part of my life. So it's mm -hmm. something then the, the concert music piece is, I'm just trying to always have something. I just finished a um, viola de moray and flute duo for a duo that uh, lives in Boulder, Colorado. It's going to play in the summer. Um, and that's been really fun. That's I'm great. Congrats. Right now. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I'm just uh, keeping myself uh, writing basically. Mm -hmm. And um, you know. Uh, those are commissions? Well, or, the, yes, the, the Viola de Mori one was, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Rattet one is not. Um, I'm hoping to, you know, put put people together and just play it. Uh -huh. Gotcha. <laughs> you know. Um, so what and, is, I'm curious, what's a typical day like? I mean, I'm sure not every, I'm sure every day is different. Right. Um, but generally speaking, and, and not just artistically and musically, but just as a human being, but who's also an artist, you know, what, what is, or, or like walk me through a typical week, you know, like how do you divide your time? Cause you, you do a bunch of different things artistically. You're also a dad. Right. Um, and you're also just a human living in Los Angeles. So how, how do you survive? How do you function? Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, um, my, not to get into too much detail, but I, I, uh, this year I've been, my I've had my my son in my life on his vacations and mm -hmm. here it's gonna be the opposite where he's with me full time so um I've had a um in a sense an easier schedule this year as far as my work goes and mm -hmm. in a sense a really challenging experience of just feeling like I'm not close to my yeah it all the time and that's yeah really hard. I'm sure um so that'll change but I but um I know for myself that my best work happens early uh in the day mm -hmm. and um I'm naturally someone who wants to stay up late. Uh, so I'm sort of a reluctant morning person, uh, but I found that it's worked out best for me. Uh, you know, I try to plan out my day more or less the night before I go, you know, the, the next day as I go to bed the night before. So I wake up with some kind of intention. Mm -hmm. uh, and ideally I get up, uh, kind of organize myself a little bit, eat some breakfast and then start writing. Um, and, you know, I'm happy the way my life is right now. I'm happy if I can get two or two and a half hours of writing in. And that's that's fine for me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then that leaves me, you know, there's all kinds, you know, that means I can still have a double session later in the day or I can still have an orchestra rehearsal or something um, or some teaching. Uh, and and that works. So that's kind of I've sort of split it that way. I try to put the writing first because that's important. Um, um, but uh you know, it's a luxury to be able to like do longer than that. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you've had this experience too. I, I'm not the kind of person who could, who can write straight for like 10 hours. I just don't, even if I had the time I would get, I, I'm, but this is how I'm at everything. I've never been the kind of person that can just sit down and just like spend five hours, you know, until mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of, I do a thing, I go away, I get a snack, I, you know, do some more, I go sweep whatever like right. I, you know i'm just I, that yeah way. i i have to take breaks i definitely have to take breaks um but if i have a if i have a pressing deadline i have no choice but to write all day right but okay. but but i'll still i'll still you know i'll take a lunch break and i'll go for a walk for half an hour or whatever you know because yep. 
you have to recharge your batteries. Well, and of course, like uh, th- that's also the difference between someone who you know you've been uh, writing music and doing it professionally for income for a lot longer than I have, you know, uh, and you have more deadlines than me. So that's you know my deadlines are often performance now. I'm still, as I said, transitioning into right. this element into my life. So right. I'm sure if you ask me in five years, it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the truth is like we're always figuring it out, you know, because life is also throwing stuff at us all the time. So you're constantly having to navigate uh, things that you are beyond your control. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with this. I'm not saying you do and I'm not, uh, but I think at at certain points, most artists encounter, uh, well, some kind of block, right? So, so how do you get inspired? You know, you want to write, you want to be writing, you know, you want to be writing. um, But, you know, where, where are you grabbing this uh, inspiration from to create? Yeah, that's the big question, right? For everybody. Um, I think I've, I've done a lot of work. Um, you know, I've had kind of a, a creative kind of career coach and that's really helped me actually make this decision to do more of this work because, um, you know, um, I started to value completion of work over quality or perfection or even quality of work. I know that sounds weird. Um, I think I've decided that it's okay for me to make a piece that isn't ultimately as great as I imagine I'll be able to do later. If that makes sense. So I'm just trying to get through my, my feeling is if, if the 10th thing or, you know, the 20th thing I'm, I'm probably on like 10th or 12th, I don't know. No, I'm probably almost at 18 where I have no idea just as far as little things, but Mm -hmm. the idea being what I make on the 80th try is going to automatically be that much beyond what I make on the 20th try. So my goal should just be keep, just keep getting through stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just trying to not get too stuck on it. Um, that's absolutely easier for me to say than to actually do. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was about to bring up the perfectionism bit because I think we all we all have that. Yep, and and of course that tension between perfectionism and and total total sort of openness to whatever comes is is the tension of being an artist, and I I get that. Um, but I, for me, it's much more important that I first of all let go of that, and second of all appreciate that sometimes the solution to something is in front of me. If I just give it some time, mm-hmm. you know, come back to something the next day. And like, when I get to that point, I'm just like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to come back tomorrow and, and see how I feel about it. And I always feel differently the next time, you know? Yeah. There's always some new solution that presents. I have the same problem with like doing crossword puzzles, like really hard crossword puzzles. I can do them, but it takes me like a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you have to walk like, away from them and, and I come back. can't see anything. And then I come back and it's obvious. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think creative, creating whether, whatever it is, I mean, in our case, it's music, obviously. Um, I always likened composition to creating a problem and then figuring out how to solve it. Right. And like you just said, like you're doing a crossword puzzle and you can't see the solution. You walk away and you come back and then it's obvious. It's similar in music, too. When you're making music, it's like, okay, well, I just... You know, in, I'm not sure exactly what you're working on, but like in my case, right now I'm working on actually kind of like an EDM track. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So it's just like, right now it's a mess. It's a mess, right? It's just like a beat here and like a, a bass line. And I don't know if it's the right sound of the bass. And, and there's no, nothing is connected right now. It's just like, it's a mosaic of some, a bunch of stuff that makes no sense. Right. So at some point, I'm going to reach a point where I'm like, okay, I have no idea what to do next. And I'm going to have to walk away and then I'll have to come back and be like, oh, well, this totally makes sense. I'll connect this to this and this and this and this. And there it is. And that's how you get your piece. It's a process, right? It's like you have to get dirty <laughs> and move yeah. stuff around and just uh, get lost for a while before you right. figure out your way out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's almost like you can't actually get something good unless you go through that, you know. There might, I mean, there's, there's probably those miraculous times where something great just kind of emerges. Yeah, but, but that's, that's like 2% of the, of the time. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the, that's exactly. Yeah. That's about where I'm at. Yeah. 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 Two to 3%. Or something right. like <laughs> you played this great concert the other night. I know that was a surreal experience for you because everybody was home. Yeah. Uh, afraid to go out and we all caught it online. Um, but you played that piece by Coastal that you wrote with your dad. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting, um, just just the idea of being able to collaborate. One, to collaborate with your dad. Two, to collaborate on a composition with anyone. Is, yeah. uh, I, I've had very few experiences like that, like actual classical pieces. I mean, rock and roll, we're always, you know, always collaborating. But, right. but to, to create a piece, uh, a classical piece with one other person. So I'm just curious what, you know, what was that process like working, you know, creating something with your dad, creating something with another person? Um, and yeah, just talk to us about that, that whole process. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, uh, actually worked better than I, I think we both thought it might. Um, you know, we, we, we share some similar stuff aesthetically, you know, I think probably also as I'm just getting going, uh, there's probably more of my dad's influence in my music now than there will be in 10 years from now. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, uh, there's also been a real openness. I mean, I really, I really admire my dad's music and I, I'm always trying to, you know, get more comfortable with it. And he's also watched my improvisational stuff and, and he's been, uh, interested in doing more of that. So, you know, we decided that we'd create some through composed sections and we'd each be responsible for, for one. And then that we'd link them using kind of structured improvisation. And that's sort of what we did. I wrote the, I wrote the beginning of the piece. Um, and he wrote a kind of a little, uh, a very short little middle sort of Island and then, a, a, a an ending. Uh, and, and then we sort of negotiated these three improv sections that connected them. Two, two improv sections that connected them. Uh, so that was basically the, the plan. And um, it, it, we didn't over, we didn't overdo it. We didn't overthink it actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't have much time. We had other stuff to work on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, were there, was, were there any challenges you encountered in with that? Yeah. yeah. And just creating with, an, with another person or, or creating with your dad for that matter was, you know? Yeah. But what was interesting is we would send each other music and there was no question about that. Like, you know, I sent him music. He, he, he didn't like say, ah, oh, I would change this. He just said, okay, that's cool. I'm going to do what I want to do from that. Then he sent me something back and I was like, that's cool. I'm going to do, I'm going to respond. So it was like, it was a very open and very kind of, yes, you know, it's not a, 
it was not it was a yes like say yes to everything kind of response that we were trying to have with each other and it worked out fine and then as far as the actual improv parts that was a more a rehearsal process you know and it was okay let's can we just decide what this can't what this won't be can we just decide you know like let's make sure that we know that only you're playing during this time and that you get to this note and that'll be my indication that I come in or I'll give you a, a nod when it's time to move on to the next section. So we just had to create some ground rules uh, and that happened over, I would say, a total of about two hours of rehearsal. It wasn't it wasn't that intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the jury's out. We could sort of say, yeah, well, some things worked better in the improv than others. Maybe we should just write them down and call it a through composed piece and, and call it a day. And we probably could have done that and it would have taken a little longer. But it, it was really fun, and I, I think we both enjoyed the process, and I think we enjoyed the hybrid performing that was partly improv and partly partly predetermined. That's great. It was a cool piece. I also really liked uh, Flutter Fingers. Thank you. That was a cool piece. You want to talk a little bit, a little bit about that piece? Yeah, that's a piece I really want to record now. I that's you know I it's a it was a, one of my early earlier. I mean it was it's only three years old, but it, it's probably the the biggest, just as far as like the form, it's probably the biggest piece I had written at that point. Um, it's about it's an 18 minute piece, three movement piece. Um, and it's a solo viola sonata that uses a lot of extended techniques, uh, mostly involving moving the bow in the wrong direction. So you get, instead of moving it along the, along the string perpendicular, you're moving it parallel to the string, which gets a lot of kind of uh, rough noise. Um, that actually has a lot of, beauty and um kind of overtone like you're getting other sounds not just the not just the regular the regular stop pitches that you're getting sounds based on where exactly on the string you catch the string there'd be these other little high frequency pitches that would Mm -hmm. change um and the piece was about is about distortion so right yeah that that definitely came across yeah um but it also there was an aggression to it, that first movement in particular. Um, uh, so I wanted to, you know, as I was listening, I was like, Hmm, what, what's going on inside Jonah? Where where did this come from? Uh, I'm curious about that. Yeah. I, I, I don't necessarily think that, that I have other music that's really aggressive because of trying to express a, you know, a real intense emotion or frustration. Mm -hmm. Um, but not in this case. I, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Right. Yeah. That's, I, I think that's the right answer. I think that's the but, right answer. But, but what I will say is I didn't come at it trying to write aggressive music. Yeah. Um, you know, the second movement, as you probably would, would notice, is a huge contrast. It's, yeah. It uses all Those natural. Har- harmonics. Yeah. Fluttering. Uh, and so, um, you know, and that's meant to be digital kind of distortion of various kinds. And then these, the ghosts of the analog come back and they come back a little bit in that. And then they really start to emerge in this third movement, which is the, the kind of the point of the piece, which is a theme in variations that uses a lot of quarter tone kind of shifting transformation, which is supposed to be like a clear thing, a clear image that starts to get shifted and kind of like a game of telephone, like changes into something else over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really liked how you connected the first two movements and the, and the third movement. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. That was really cool. And if you notice it, that's always, <laughs> that's always a good sign. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I definitely noticed that. You know, as composers, and I think all artists, 
do this or the successful ones. Um, and I'm not saying successful monetarily. I'm just ter- in terms of which producing a, a good work of art, whatever that is a good work. Um, we often use models, right? That we, we can then uh, make our own, you know, we steal, right? The best artists steal. You steal something that you, that really um, excites you or uh, intrigues you and you explore that and then you, add to it or change it or modify it in some way and it becomes your own. Right. Is there a work that you were modeling this piece over? Uh, no. No. It just not, came. Not, not explicitly. Okay. I had been listening to a little bit of, actually, you know, my sister, this wonderful violist, Nadia Sirota, and also mm-hmm. a music player, and she has this, she had a great podcast called Meet the Composer for WNYC, and yeah. now she has Living Music, which is now a, a has moved at least over the course of the this COVID-19 thing to an online kind of Facebook live pirate radio thing, which, which just started last night. So check that out. Cool. Um, but, uh, she, she, I had just listened to her meet the composer episode with Andrew Norman and he is a violist, uh, also. And, uh, you know, he's a, a really nice guy and, um, you know, he was talking about some of these techniques and I was, you know, I'd already been experimenting with some of them. And I, and so I was certainly inspired by his talk about like, well, it'd be really fun to do it. Just a, like a study about this kind of stuff. So that's how it started, but it wasn't based on a piece specifically. It was more, you know, except that as a solo viola sonata, you know, um, I'm influenced by solo viola sonatas. I've played Stravinsky mm-hmm. by Hindemith by, mm-hmm. um, um, I, I'm trying to. I'm drawing a blank now that I have to list them, but you know, I know the viola repertoire very well. Sure, so. sure. That may, I would think. Was that piece in sonata form at all? Was there any inkling of a sonata form? I wasn't listening uh, for that. Not, not intentionally. I mean, there's development. I, I always right. wanted the development, but right. uh, there, the last moment, the theme and variations certainly had uh, the closest to that. What are your current goals? Um, well, I, I, in, in music and in life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to be a film composer writing, uh, orchestral soundtracks. That's, that's the big goal. And that's, um, kind of what a lot of this pushes about. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of sort of orchestration work and, um, helping people with that. And I wrote an orchestra piece last summer. I'm just trying to kind of get that chops done and, um, uh, stronger and easier, faster, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I want to keep using my playing as you know, my voice on the viola as a part of what I'm doing, no matter what. So, you know, I don't know what that hybrid looks like yet. I think what I think we're all looking for is I'm looking for that that path that only I could really take. Mm-hmm. You know? And and I think when people are a little confused by it, that's I've decided that's a good sign. You know. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like everyone's like, oh, no, you this what you're supposed to do. Or that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm, yeah. I'm getting to that age where I've, you know, as, yeah, as yeah, yeah. I don't have any Fs let, yet left yeah. to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, that's where we're getting to. So I'm looking for that hybrid that uses everything that I that I do and, and that I that only I can do really well. Yeah, uh, I think that's great. Yeah. I, and, that, you know, and I'm learning that is your competitive edge, actually. Like no one right. can compete with that because right. nobody right. can do what you do. Exactly. Right. So as long as I'm trying to kind of be better than so-and-so at such and such a thing, 
that's already setting it up in, a, in the wrong for me in the wrong way it's like no like you know if there's if there's skills you need to be able to that, that to not be getting in the way of the stuff you really are about build those up but otherwise it's about um not questioning you know that everything you are and have been can come together into something you that that that's unique and 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 i i really believe that that everybody has that yeah it's not that's not about like um it's it's actually the opposite of ego i think ego is the thing that 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 thinks you're supposed to compete on someone else's Mm -hmm. turn be the best of you know whatever yeah and compare yourself yeah I fully agree. What advice do you have for young musicians who are getting into uh, into a world of professional music? You know, whether they're just finishing school or you know they're or they've already put a few toes in that world. Um, it doesn't have to be specifically for the classical world, but it can be. Just curious what insight you have to impart. Um. Yeah, what I would say to what I guess if there's but I'd say to someone who's just starting out, uh, first of all, whenever anyone gives you advice about anything at all, to recognize that that is all about them. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it can't be useful to you, but mm-hmm. that advice is is about them and their, their, their journey, not about you. So always take everything with a grain of salt and realize that, you know, you have to figure, you know, what you feel is true is, is more important on the long term. Um, and I also would tell them that everything they got at school, they're going to use and that they shouldn't also feel limited by any vision or version of, uh, a career that their teachers say is what has to happen or whatever. Cause that's just not the, that was never true to begin with, but the world we live in now is especially not, not true. You know, yeah. the stuff that you happen to be good at on the side you know, social media or, um, making little videos for your friends or producing hip hop tracks or whatever, all, you're going to end up using all of it somehow. If you like, if you, if you, if you enjoy it Yeah. Um, and to stick, you know, to stick with getting really great at the things that you really love, not just the things you think you're supposed to do. I think it's beautiful. I think that's, that's a, great advice. That's what I wish I'd been told earlier. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Live and learn. Yeah. Um, Jonah, this has been great. Thanks so much, man. It's really awesome connecting with you in this way. Yeah. uh, Stay safe, stay healthy. Yeah, you too, man. Let's stay in touch. And, uh, you know, when this all passes, um, you need to come back here and we'll we'll jam or do something. Great. Cool. All All right. right. Take care, Jonah. Bye, man. Well, that was fun. What a great chat. Jonah is awesome. You can find out more about Jonah Sirota online. His website is jonasirota.com. That's J-O-N-A-H-S-I-R-O-T-A.com. Jonah's music is available on Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Music, and you can follow him on Twitter and on Facebook. I want to thank Jonah for coming on Music is Life, a signature podcast of Perry Veritas Studios in collaboration with my own company, Green Zebra Music, located in Los Angeles, California. And I'd like to thank you for listening. For more information on this podcast, go to musicislifepod.com. 
And if you enjoy this show, please go ahead and subscribe. You can help keep the show alive by going to Apple Podcasts and giving Music is Life a good rating. To find out more about my own work, please visit joelstein.com. I also invite you to follow me on Instagram and connect with me there. My Instagram handle is joelhenrystein. I wish you all a fabulous week full of creativity, health, and groundedness. I'm going to leave you with an orchestral excerpt from a soundtrack I composed for the Discovery Channel. I'll see you all next time on Music Is Life. Thank you.